Hello there, I'm Patrick Struth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Ben Mimek, Director of Investor Relations and Director Andy Waltman of Baymark Partners. Baymark Partners is a Dallas-based, growth-oriented private equity firm, acquiring growing middle market companies, providing owners with liquidity and resources to accelerate growth. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Now, before we get into Baymark Partners, let's set the table and get a little context for our listeners. Uh, We can start with Ben here, but Ben and then Andy, tell us what led you to this point in your career. Well, uh, Patrick, I grew up in the UK. Um, You may be able to tell from my accent, um, although I've been in the US for 10 years now, so I feel like it's, it's starting to disappear. But I did grow up in the UK. Uh, I went to university and law school. Um, I was very briefly um, a practicing attorney, and then I uh, worked in banking in London for several years before I came to the US and went to business school uh, in Dallas at SMU. Um, you'll find there's a very strong SMU uh, presence at Baymark Partners. Um, and in fact, when I was at business school, I interned with uh, David and Tony at Baymark Partners in the, in the early days of the, of the life of the firm. Um, after business school, I went and worked in finance at American Airlines and spent the last five years of my time at American in the investor relations team there. And then when I was looking to uh, do something a little bit different than, than big company, public uh, company investor relations, uh, the, the guys at Baymark called me up and said, would you be interested in, in doing uh, some uh, work for us? And I, I jumped at the chance and I've been uh, been at Baymark since November of, of 2019. So I'm still relatively new to the PE space, uh, but I, I think it's fascinating. Um, the kind of work we do is, is really very interesting and um, uh, I'm delighted to be on board. So it's a safe change from lots of uh, airline miles you were getting to having your feet on the ground. Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's more like real life, I would say. Uh, but given what's happening with the airlines right now, you could say it was a, a very lucky escape. Very good. Andy? Uh, sure, sure. So um, I'm, I would say I have a not a very typical background for, for uh, private equity. Um, I started my career, I came out of Trinity University uh, about 11 years ago now. Uh, I came out with more of a typical accounting degree, uh, went down the big four path. I started at PricewaterhouseCoopers, spent two years there in the audit and tax departments, got my CPA, uh, but I realized the public accounting world was just not for me. I was very fortunate. I got an opportunity early with uh, an oil and gas private equity firm, Energy Spectrum here in Dallas, which uh, was a fantastic firm. I was there for five years. Uh, that was a smaller, uh, about a billion, about $2 billion of assets under management, uh, smaller firm and employee size. So I think we had about 20 professionals and uh, I was in the financial reporting group there, but because of uh, the size of the firm, I was able to do a lot there. And uh, after, um, after a, a good, again, five years there, uh, I decided I kind of wanted to get out and, and do a little bit uh, more of a wide range of investments rather than just purely uh, midstream oil and gas. And so uh, I also went to SMU while I was still at Energy Spectrum. I got my MBA there. Um, and then I went uh, and found the opportunity with Baymark. And I've been with Baymark now for just over four years uh, at the director level. And I've been uh, helping from everything, due diligence, acquiring companies to continuing to work with those companies in our kind of portfolio development uh, process. One of the things that I like to learn about when I'm meeting private equity firms is the founders are a lot more creative than 
in other industries such as the law or insurance. And those companies, they usually uh, name their firms after the, the, the founders and it's uh, very boring, no creativity whatsoever. Uh, you could tell a lot about a firm by how they named itself. So, you know, tell us about Baymark Partners. How did it come up with its name and give us a quick profile. Sure. Um, well, we Andy and I had to go back to uh, to our founders, David Hook and Tony Ludlow, and, and ask them because we weren't around when the when the company was named. You know, I think the the true uh, process might have been lost to history. Uh, they had to think about it for a bit, but I think it's connected to the fact that David Hook, one of our founders, grew up in Bay Village, Ohio. So that's probably where the Bay came from, and he spent a lot of time in the Bay Area when he was a a VC investor in the eighties and nineties. Um, so it's it's kind of a reference to those two. And I think, you know, they just wanted to make their mark when they, uh, when they set out. So, you know, that's where Baymark came from. And then the area that you guys are focusing largely is middle, lower middle market. Tell me about, tell me about the area that, that, that you target there. Yeah, I mean, I would say we're a, we're a middle market firm. Um, probably if you wanted to refine it further, more on the lower middle market side than, than uh, your true middle, middle market. Um, but any company in the... Two to ten million dollar EBITDA range is, is really in our sweet spot. Um, we like margins of north of ten percent, and you know, really in terms of, of what we're looking for in in industries, we love services companies, we love tech enable companies, distribution companies, light manufacturing companies, you know, healthcare, um, anything in the in that kind of, of region. But really, we're, we're we're pretty industry agnostic. I'd say the only things we really won't take a look at are hospitality, restaurants, and, and brick and mortar retail. Everything else um, we'll at least take a look at. And I think you know, some, certainly David is very much a, a deal focused individual. There's there's no company out there that he at least at first glance doesn't think he can make something interesting or do something interesting with. So we look at a lot of uh, potential transactions. Um, we throw them back and forth to each other and and spitball whether we can make something happen. Um, and that's, for a lot of us, probably the most interesting part of what we do. And, you know, we like, we like the lower middle market for, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, the, the companies that are populating in the, in the middle market really are the bedrock of, of the U.S. economy. You know, these companies that just you know, provide 10 to, to, you know, 20 to 30 jobs in their communities that, that do very interesting um, work that fill you know, unheralded niches a lot of times that you, you don't even think that companies are required to fulfill. They, they do this work. And in many cases, they're entrepreneur-owned businesses that are looking to take the next step. The people who run these companies, you know, they know that they need to expand and grow and, and diversify, but they just don't know how to do it. We love those, we love those companies because they have a lot of potential. And in many cases, um, they're small enough that the, the inflation, the, the valuations are not as inflated as they are in, in other parts of the market. So we feel that uh, our knowledge and, and, and the markets we look at, we can get some very, very interesting and, and good deals in the, in the segments that we play in. Well, and there's also a lot more lower middle market companies and unicorns out there, even though there are a lot <laughs> more unicorns than people think. That's very true. I, I sincerely believe, and the reason why I reach out to you specifically is because if, if you want to make a difference, okay, the place to do it is in the lower middle market. And it, it, it's sizable and it does, as you say, it's filling a lot of needs out there that otherwise wouldn't be filled. People wouldn't even know they were there, but they play key roles in their communities. They play big contributions for uh, the lives of a lot more people than, than you realize. 
And it's just not fair because if, if these smaller firms, they hit a, a ceiling, they don't know where to go. And what happens often is they're going to default and pick up the phone or reach out to a brand name or the institutions out there. And that is just a recipe for failure for them. And, you know, and I mean that in a big way because what happens is the larger institutions are scaled up. They'll have limited solutions for smaller clients. They're going to overlook them. They're not going to be responsive. Whatever solutions they do provide may not be a fit because they don't have the bandwidth to offer multiple solutions that could help fit a smaller firm's individual needs. On top of all that, they're going to overcharge them. And so they will get less and pay more. And I have a real passion for the entrepreneurs out there, the people that started with nothing and created tremendous value. So anybody that's out there to help get them to the next level and make them multiples of, of where they wanted to be, uh, that, that's nothing but good. And the more that we can go ahead and highlight the presence of organizations like Baymark Partners, all the better. And so I mean, we're, we're both on the, on the same page there. Um, yeah, Let's talk about some of the things that a private equity firm can do for an owner founder versus what a strategic uh, perspective suitor might bring. Sure, sure. So this is, uh, again, this is Andy. Uh, To talk about that, you know, we're usually, I'll kind of talk about what Baymark can bring. And, you know, each private equity firm is going to be slightly different. Um, And I think where Baymark uh, is unique in relation to other private equity firms is is our background. We just have, for such a small firm, we have a very eclectic group of, of different backgrounds. Uh, I think we might have mentioned uh, one of our founders, David Hook, uh, had a lot of success out in the venture capital world. He spent 25 years investing in companies out there. I think he invested in about 50 startup companies from sometime around the mid-80s to the mid-2000s, uh, the aughts, I guess they're called. Uh, and about 14 of those ended up going IPO, uh, IPO'd and going public. So he has a lot of experience of you know, you know, those were even earlier than, you know, lower middle market, right? Those were even smaller, you know, startup venture deals. And so he has a lot of experience, you know, growing companies, looking at the big picture saying, hey, we're here now, you know, how can we quadruple that in five years? And so, you know, we've had, you know, one company that had a great management team in place. We've had, you know, uh, some companies that really need some other pieces, but we had one company we bought that they had a really great management team in place. We didn't really have to make any tweaks there. The big thing that was missing there is just, is just the vision. They just didn't have the imagination. We, uh, we bought this company. They were about, you know, 12, $13 million in sales and $2 million uh, of EBITDA. Uh, and today they're closer to 60 million in sales and uh, six and a half million of EBITDA. So um, I, I wish I could say all of our deals look like that, but uh, that was an instance where it was saying, okay, what's the plan? What's the vision? And now let's, Let's actually go out and execute that. And uh, while I'll give D- David and Baymar credit for helping with the vision, I-, I will say that company had a great team and they uh, and they executed it uh, very well. So, so that's one example. Uh, our other founder, Tony Ludlow, um, uh, he has a very eclectic background. He has uh, he was an attorney for some time. He's also a CPA. But I think what really made him ideal for this uh, this world is he has a lot of operational experience. So he knows what it's like to have a team of people working for him you know, what it means to, you know, have to fire people, whether, whether they deserve it or not, whether it's just something that has to be done, we have to cut 10%, even if they don't deserve it, you know, so he's had to live through that. He, he really has had that hands-on experience that a lot of entrepreneurs 
face on a day-to-day basis. And so he doesn't have that just kind of pure spreadsheet mentality of like, okay, this is what the spreadsheet does is what we have to do. He knows, he understands that there's a, a human element to this. And, and so I think starting with those two guys, that's kind of spread through the culture of our firm that we don't just have a uh, spreadsheet mentality that we really try to understand what these entrepreneurs are trying to do uh, and help them achieve those goals. But back to, back to some more about kind of what these, what, what we can bring as a private equity firm. I, I think, I think it depends on the company. We've had uh, some companies where uh, a lot of the companies we work with, we see this, uh, where we have an entrepreneur who's trying to wear every single hat in the business. You know, when we want to talk to the accountant, we talk to the owner. When we want to talk to the operations manager, we talk to the owner. When we want to talk to the uh, CEO, it's the owner. And so, you know, we try to come in and say, okay, what are you passionate about? What are you good at? You're, you're obviously a sales guy. You know how to sell. You love working with customers. And every time I talk to you about the accounting, yeah, I can see you pulling your hair out. So let's, let us help you. We're going to bring in an accounting person, a, a CFO, you know, someone that can augment you, uh, help, help your company, but we're not looking to replace the entrepreneur. We're not looking to bring in a whole bench of people to kind of replace what he's trying to do. It's more of a, let's take some things off that entrepreneur's plate and, and really, you know, build out his team so he can focus on what he's good on and we can have other skilled people in position to help build that company. Some of the other things we've done with companies, uh, we, you know, we obviously have kind of some of the typical benefits. We have obviously access to financing. We have good relationships with banking. And, and Patrick, as you mentioned, you know, while we're not a big firm at Baymark, uh, we do work with, I think right now we have about nine portfolio companies in total that we work with. You know, we have scale in that regard, right? If we're trying to negotiate new insurance terms and say, hey, we, you know, we're looking to make these changes for a lot of our portfolio companies. And so that's something, you know, you know, we can get better deals because it's not just a single small company going. And sometimes it's a whole it's a whole portfolio of companies who are looking to make a, tr- a change. Or also act as an outsourced M and A department for our companies. Uh, if we think the best way to grow a company, if the if the owner thinks that that we need to go out and uh, make some acquisitions, uh, we go out. We work with the brokers, our network of brokers, uh, business intermediaries, and try to go find those acquisitions that fit the goals of what we're trying to do with our company. So each company is different uh, depending on depending on what that company is, we'll, we try to help fill that hole, whether it be us or with adding people. So, well, what, I, what I see there is you're flexible enough where the portfolio company, particularly if they've got good management or whatever, if they need some day-to-day help, you've got resources there, or if they just want to be left alone, just get them some capital so they can execute more and then find other targets for growth, you can do that. Yes, yes. While we do have operational experience and we're comfortable in that role, that's never what we're looking to do because we have such a small firm. You know, our goal is is to kind of set the plan and, and have the management teams uh, execute that plan. But we do have the comfort to go in and, and be more hands-on if, if that's what's required. But again, it's, it's usually the ideal if we can, you know, help with the vision, help with the strategy, get the right people in place. And then uh, we try not to micromanage and let the companies uh, execute the plan. Describe your ideal target. What, what are you looking for either, you know, as, as a portfolio company or for, you know, a partner to exit one of your portfolio companies? Either way. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can take this one. Um, and I, I think I addressed it earlier a little bit when I said, you know, we, we like the, the services, tech-enabled distribution, manufacturing, uh, a part of the world. You know, I can kind of go into a little more depth on that. But we like we like what everyone else likes. We like established and recurring revenue streams. We like diversified customer base and high retention rates and a competitive advantage, a nice moat, 
a company based in part of the world that's easy to get to. So all the, all the usual requirements that everyone wants. But certainly, I think we are willing to look past perhaps some issues that, that other firms may not be. Um, we certainly, as, as David has said to me more than once, we like companies with a little bit of hair on them for a couple of reasons. One, I think, uh, as Andy mentioned, we have the expertise in our firm, I think, to deal with, with issues that maybe other firms aren't comfortable dealing with. And second, you know, you can you can often buy a good company for a for a very reasonable price if there are some issues that you know other people have have been a little bit scared of. So, you know, and we'll look at any of those companies that um, that we think we can we can do something interesting with. And and I think one of the one of the things that Baymark does a little bit differently than than other companies, and and the reason one of the other reasons we play in the uh, lower middle market space is. If you can buy a company with a good multiple, then you don't have to load it up with a huge amount of debt and then spend your whole time trying to pay the debt off before you, uh, before you exit the, the investment. We like to grow our companies, um, and it's a lot easier to grow a company um, if you bought it for a more reasonable multiple and haven't had to load it up with debt. So we're certainly always looking for companies we can grow. Um, that's how we like to make money is, is to, is to you know, increase revenues, increase um, profitability of our portfolio companies, and then... Um, you know, we we like to send our companies on on the on their way into the world um, in better shape than we bought them. Um, we're not interested in buying uh, a company that someone has spent years and years building up and then you know taking our taking our uh, profits and and leaving it in a bad state. We want to buy a company, improve it, grow it, and then sell it. And and if we can make money doing that, then then we're very happy. And and if the company is better for having um, being owned by us, and that's great. One of the big trends that's out there um, nowadays is uh, uh, deals are now being, the risk is being uh, transferred out through uh, use of REPA warranty insurance. I'm just curious because now the eligibility requirements for REPA warranty have come down from middle market down to lower middle market. Deals are now eligible. Tell me, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, what kind of experiences Baymark partners have with rep and warranty on any of their deals? So we've, we've used it on one occasion um, with a deal that we, we did actually quite early in the, uh, in the, in the life of, the, uh, of Baymark. And the reason we used it is because there was kind of an asymmetric risk profile between, between the sellers. One of the sellers was, was going to take a, a lot more risk with the, with the representations and warranties, um, and he wasn't comfortable kind of being point man for for some of these uh, some of these reps, and so we use the the insurance as a way to kind of even the playing field uh, amongst all the sellers. So, um, you know, in those circumstances where you have a kind of asymmetric risk profile, then then it works out very well. One of the other reasons we like it is you know it removes the escrow requirement, so that can be that can be a way of getting a deal done that that can be a something that stands in the way otherwise. So, yeah, absolutely, we we think there's a place for it um, where appropriate. We're we absolutely will use it and. Um, and certainly, you know, have, have had positive experiences with it in the past. Yeah, that was my second deal I ever did. That's the exact scenario we had. We had a tech company that was being acquired by a publicly traded company. And the tech company, uh, you had one investor that had the lion's share of the risk. And you had 10 other investors, but their, their, um, their shares were so much smaller that that one lead investor, he was the deep pockets. And yeah. so he, he was directing that. And fortunately for us, we had a, a very affable working buyer that agreed to go forward with the rep and warranty to help out the seller because he wanted to make him happy. 
And, um, you know, it was simple. The seller paid for the premium, was happy to do it. The buyer was happy to not have to cover that expense, but had a very happy uh, acquisition target and the team came over and it went very well. So we can see that what's been fortunate in the development that we've seen come through is not only uh, is rapid warranty available for the sizable deals, but now it's gotten to the price point where it's not a bad idea for add-ons. And so now as more frequent transactions are happening with add-ons, if there's that tool for an add-on and that brings you know, some cost benefits, there, there's another usage for it. So we like the trend as it's going and um, we expect to see it become about as common as title insurance and real estate. So as we record this today, uh, we're hopefully on the downside of the COVID-19 uh, settle in place. You're based in Texas and you're on the verge of opening up. We're in California. We hope to open up sometime next year, the way things are going. So give us your thoughts in the next 60 to 90 days, in the next quarter. What do you see as m trends either for Baymark partners? Are you guys, you know, getting yourself all geared up to get, you know, hit, hit the race or uh, get out of the starting blocks and sprint or wait and see. What are you seeing out there? Oh, that's a good question, right? That we've heard that question a lot and we, we've been asking it ourselves. We kind of talk about it weekly. And um, I, I would say it's, it's still, it's still early. We've actually had, we've had had kind of some deals uh, in all parts of the pipeline that have been affected by this. And so we've had a couple that we were pretty far along in the process and we're still trying to complete those deals, even with some of the uncertainty we've, We've been trying to monitor uh, the company's performance this time and just try to get an understanding of the core business and what and how it's, you know, how it's navigating these times. And so um, I would say right now, uh, a lot of the lenders have been slow to react or I've been kind of, I guess, getting a little tense and a little tighter, uh, which is understandable and um, something we would expect to see in this market. But we've, we are working with some lenders who are still doing deals. Uh, and another thing that's, that's slowed down some of the lenders we work with is obviously some of the banks we work with have been uh, kind of underwater trying to process some of these CARES PPP loans. So uh, a lot of factors that have, that have, I would definitely say, slowed the process down, but we still have, I would say, pretty good visibility on a couple opportunities that we think will close over the next few months. You know, as far as new opportunities that we're looking at, uh, we do see some sellers who are still very interested in selling. They're very, they're very confident in their business. And I think the private equity firms that are going to do the best are that are going to have the ability to get a little creative, you know, build relationships in this time. I think starting a deal from today uh, and trying to, to buy it, it's going to take a little more time than it normally would. Uh, but it's important, you know, we're, we're really trying to build relationships with these with the companies, with the owners, uh, try to keep expectations in line um, and do what we can to, if the company does go off and has a blip uh, because of this, uh, because of the coronavirus, we try to do what we can to say, okay, we're going to give it some time, see if it comes back or, you know, develop some kind of creative structure where, you know, the seller's still getting kind of what they wanted for their business, even if they're being slightly affected by what's going on. So, you know, I think for now it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit of a slower process, but we've definitely been talking with, again, firms, other firms, other lenders, and uh, deals are still going through, deals are still happening, uh, just at a little bit of a slower pace. With the result of this uh, pandemic, it wasn't a situation where we had a structural fiscal problem or something with the, with the, the banking and the financial infrastructure here as, as opposed to 2008, 2009. 
Uh, so I think that even though you've got this headwind of all this activity for lenders right now, I think eventually they're going to get back to what they usually do. And they've got the resources to do it. I think that uh, the one thing that's been said about private equity for the last four years is they've got uh, their stack of dry powder and it hasn't gotten you know any smaller. So I think as target prices start coming down and valuations come down a little bit, uh, there could be some opportunities to move uh, quickly if, if, if organizations are clear in their thing of what they want and they've got a, uh, a willing partner on the other side of the deal. I think we could see an uptick in activity, maybe not immediately. However, I think as things start coming back to normal, there are some that are going to lead the trend uh, and lead the activities, and then others are going to be needing to catch up. And so that kind of can activity can kind of build upon itself and get get us a little momentum. So but that's that's an optimistic side from from my perspective, gentlemen. Well, I know for one, Baymark is very very keen to to continue doing deals. So. Um... You know, we we certainly see um, you know an opportunity in the in the next few months, and we'll hope to take advantage of it. Well, there are people out that maybe wanting to reach out to you to have that kind of conversation. Ben, Andy, how can our listeners find you? So we're uh, we're on the web at baymarkpartners.com, um, and we're very easy to contact uh, via email. Uh, I'm Ben at baymarkpartners.com. Andy is Andy at baymarkpartners.com. Um, so you know. We are, we are always available to, uh, to chat, to, uh, to have an email exchange if you are um, you know, interested in what we do and, and want to learn more. We are, we are happy to talk. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure meeting you. And ladies and gentlemen, please look out for Baymark Partners. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick.